Well, good morning again, church. I want to just say publicly that in the code of ethics of pastors in the Christian church tradition, that it is generally customary for the pastor who is in the pulpit to be the one who extends the invitations to the predecessors. And I want you to know that I have already said to Pastor Darrell and Garen, and I want to say it publicly, you have a standing invitation to this place anytime. Thank you. I want to uh, share with you, this is sort of a, a mixed bag this morning. Not only are we celebrating the witness and testimony of this house of worship, uh, we continue in a popular series about stewardship. And, uh, but, but as I shared with you, this isn't necessarily uh, just about tithes and offerings, although we welcome all of that. Uh, but it is uh, a focus on the gifts God has given to us as stewards of his blessings for the advancement of the gospel. And so this morning, we're going to reflect on that with regard to this house of worship and other houses of worship that God has been instrumental in calling into being so that his work can be done. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would ask you to turn to 1 Kings in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 8, and a famous passage in 1 Kings. If you're in our training for service uh, classes, you uh, uh, may remember uh, we've been looking at some of the Old Testament books. 1 Kings was one of them. Uh, just to let you know, those folks have a heads up on some of the others. I didn't tell them I was going to be preaching on 1 Kings. I didn't want to make them nervous, uh, but... Uh, they helped write this sermon. Yes, that's exactly right. So 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, this is called Solomon's Prayer. This is the portion after the temple in Jerusalem had been completed, the plans drawn up by David, Solomon's father, King David, and now this temple stands uh, as probably one of the greatest edifices in the ancient world. To this day, it's considered uh, one of the greatest uh, wonders of the world. And Solomon offers this prayer of dedication. Uh, it begins in verse 22. It ends uh, really at the uh, verse 61. I'm not going to read all of those verses to you, but I do encourage you to go home this afternoon and read all of those. And so I'm going to begin in verse 22 of chapter 8 of 1 Kings. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you, in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me, 
Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. And then I'm going to jump down uh, to verse 53. Verse 53. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. The first churches that uh, we know about uh, that existed in the world come from the book of Acts, and these were originally homes that were used uh, for worship. If you were here during our Philemon series, uh, we heard about how Philemon's home in the city of Colossae was considered a church, and uh, many of the churches to which Paul wrote were in people's homes. The oldest building ever built as a church that we know about was discovered in Aqaba, Jordan. I've actually been there to see the ruins of this. It's in the middle of a busy intersection. They apparently were digging to try to expand uh, the size of the intersection, and lo and behold, discovered the ruins of an ancient church. Uh, and they, uh, scholars have said this is the oldest uh, building that was built solely for the purpose of the worship of God. We don't know. It could be as early as the uh, early, late 1st, early 2nd century. It's a relatively very small, modest building. But once Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire and then ultimately the Byzantine Empire, former pagan temples were repurposed as churches. But the oldest church built that was built as a church and is still used today, you can visit it in Armenia. It was built sometime during the late 4th or early 5th century. We're not really sure how much it cost, and of course it's been added onto over the years, but it still exists there today. In the 6th century, the Hagia Sophia, it is the domed building in Istanbul, if you watch the news and you see the domed building, it was built by the Emperor Justinian in what is today Istanbul, Turkey. In today's economy, if we had to build that kind of church today, it would cost $3 billion. Now, most folks probably aren't very familiar with those first three churches that I mentioned, but pretty much everybody knows about the Vatican, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It was built in 1506 and cost what would be today $5.4 million dollars. It was, I'm sorry, did I say million? No, 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 no. I meant to say billion. I want you all to know how easy you got off on 3.7 million. (laughs) The interesting thing about St. Peter's Basilica is that it was primarily financed through the sale of forgiveness. You might have heard it in your history class in high school as the sale of indulgences, and it was uh, the very match that lit the Protestant Reformation. It's what really ticked off Martin Luther. I think it's kind of funny now that we Protestants go to Rome and spend $22 to go through that building that we built years ago and we were sorely against. Now, lots of people criticize the large amount of money that was spent building these churches. But let me tell you a little bit more about these churches. The church that I mentioned in Armenia 
has stood for 1,500 years. And it has weathered war and persecution. Armenian Christians are some of the oldest Christians in the world. And if you were here yesterday at our Brotherhood Breakfast, you heard the story of Muhammad in Iran who was led to Christ by Armenian Christians. The Hagia Sophia, the one in Istanbul, though the building still stands today, it's no longer a church, but it functioned as a church for over a thousand years. And it was the place that the first Russian entered into, was immediately converted to Christianity, and took the faith back to Russia in the ninth century. Today in our scripture, we read the record of the prayer of King Solomon, who offered this prayer with its petitions in celebration of the completion of the temple in Jerusalem known as Solomon's Temple. It took 30,000 Israelites, 150,000 Canaanites, untold numbers of Phoenician artists and craftsmen from Tyre, seven years to build it. If we were to translate the cost in today's figures, it would cost $6 billion, billion dollars, to build the building itself. If you factor in the gold, the silver, the cedar, the carvings, and all of the, the aspects that made that temple beautiful, that figure goes up from $6 billion, are you ready? To $172 billion. The temple cost ancient Israel $178 billion to build. Now, the building of the temple was more than just a great undertaking by this great King Solomon. It had a theological, spiritual point as well. It was the exclamation point, if you will, to the call of God some 400 years prior when God called the Israelites out of Egypt. As a matter of fact, that temple, one could argue, was the exclamation point that dates back and goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God called all of creation into existence by His Word, when God created Adam and Eve to walk with Him, to be in relationship with Him. And you know the story. Adam and Eve would ultimately reject and rebel against the God who had brought them into existence. And in so doing, they were forced out of God's company. And ever since that day, ever since that day when our parents, Adam and Eve, were forced to leave the Garden of Eden, humanity, the sons of Adam, the daughters of Eve, have longed for God's presence. Now, it's an important point to remember that the bookends of the Bible begin with God, first of all. In the Garden with two people. And at the other end of the Bible, we have a city of untold numbers of people, both being called into existence by God, and both intended to be the opportunity in which God's creation, me and you, can be in relationship with Him. The only way that you and I can enjoy God's presence is through that which God Himself has built. 
And yet, throughout the ages, great structures pointing to God's glory have been built, but not one single one of them could capture God. None of them could contain God. None of them could keep God walled in so that on the occasions that we would desire to be in God's presence, we could go to that building and enjoy God's presence and then leave without worrying about God demanding too much from us outside of that building. Unfortunately, many times when, when, the, when, when, when Christians have built buildings, we thought it was a way to keep God separated from our lives in other parts of the world. Keep God out of parts of our lives where we don't want God to be. To seek to, to control, we had the audacity to seek to control the relationship that we have with God. I'll get cleaned up, I'll, 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 I'll do what I need to do, I'll say my prayers, I'll come, I'll be with you, and then I can go out and do what I want, be what I want, and you'll be there when I get ready to come back again. Now I know that sounds kind of harsh, but I bet every single person in this room today could testify to someone that they know that views their relationship with God that way. Now Solomon's prayer is one of the greatest prayers in Scripture, and although it is a petition, a conversation between God and the king, appointed by God himself, we are taught ten things about the temple in Solomon's prayer. So let's get comfortable because I'm going to, no, I'm not going to go through all ten of them. But I tell you what, if you want to know all ten of them, and if you're in a small group, you're going to be looking at those things. If you're not in a small group, you need to get in a small group. But other than that, there's actually study guides outside in the lobby next to the Welcome Center, and I outline all ten of those things that Solomon teaches us about the temple. But I am going to very quickly look through five of those ten as we seek to understand what Solomon, what God was trying to teach us about the importance of the temple. And the first of all is the temple reminds us of our testimony. Beginning in verse 26 of 1 Kings 8. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoke to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed, this is Solomon speaking, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Brothers and sisters, God's testimony of the truth of his existence, his glory, his holiness, his profound love, his faithfulness are proclaimed in the temple, and they are proclaimed in this place as well. Our testimony is that the Bible itself states, it begins, quote, in the beginning, God. It is the answer to the first question that I posed to you last week. That is, do you believe that God, who exists outside of time, space, and matter, has called all things into existence? It is the testimony that there is a God of the universe. The second thing that Solomon witnesses to in his prayer is that the temple is a place of prayer. It is in this place, too right here where you are today, that countless people have been introduced to the God who wants to be in a relationship with them, with you. Now, too often in our culture, we have viewed prayer as some sort of, you know, spiritual divine vending machine. You know, you go in, you put your coins in, 
And then you get to choose a, a list of things that look good, and you pick what it is, and that's what you get. For many who have not as yet come to understand the profound gift of prayer, they have unfortunately viewed prayer as simply a time to list their desires, their complaints, their grumbles, and expect God to do something about it. Frankly, it sounds a lot like some of our board meetings. (laughs) And that's fine at board meetings, sort of. It is not fine in prayer. That's not necessarily the purpose of prayer. The Bible defines prayer as a conversation. Now, you know the importance of conversations and other aspects of your life. There's not a single happy marriage that exists without conversation. I've had many a couple come into my office seeking some sort of help or support or counseling, and, and, and not a single one that has really been struggling, said, oh, we have great conversation, we really enjoy being with each other, but we're still having marital problems. Has not happened once. It is the gift of Christianity, brothers and sisters. Every other religion in the world says that you're to do a list of things to appease God. Every other religion in the world says that God is disconnected, that God is distant, that God is absent from everyday life, but not Christianity. We are people who dare to proclaim that God wants a personal, intimate, and daily relationship with each one of his children every day and every moment of every day. And every time this room, this place is used, there is the proclamation that God is inviting you into a relationship with him. I've written in the front of my Bible a little reminder that prayer does not so much change the mind of God as much as it changes me. Prayer disciplines my mind. Prayer disciplines my heart. Prayer disciplines us to want the things that God wants. Prayer reveals to us our purpose, not just for our life, but for today. It is not something vain or happenstance to be able to rise in the morning and say to God, what shall I do for you today? Solomon goes on and he continues to teach, the temple is a place of redemption. In verse 33 we read, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy. You ever felt defeated before the enemy? Here's the answer. When your people are defeated before the enemy because, oh no, I hate it when they tell us why we're defeated. Because, verse 33, they have sinned against you. That takes more courage, I think, than anything. To be able to stand before God and say, I have sinned against you. In thought, word, and deed. That I have not lived my life for your glory. It takes courage to admit you're wrong. Isn't that right, wives? How many of your husbands still have not the courage to admit when they're wrong? (laughs) Solomon goes on, but if, if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then here in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. The word redeem, from which the word redemption comes from, means literally to be set free, to be bought back. 
Sean and I were at dinner this past week in a restaurant in downtown Denver. And as we sat there in this restaurant, uh, our spirits were greatly unsettled. We didn't talk about it while we were at the restaurant. But after we had left the place and were on our way home, we began to talk about just the, the, the sense of, of, of spiritual uneasiness that we felt in this crowded room. In this very loud, crowded room, we sensed in our spirits a profound sense of emptiness and loneliness around us. Have you ever felt that way before? You're in a crowd of people with the noise, the empty conversation of complaining about the service, politics, war, violence. People are alone. Somebody here might be alone, hurting, afraid, their souls hungering for meaning. Their souls hungering for a true relationship and unable to find that which will quench their thirst. This house stands to say that there is hope. This house stands to say there is meaning. There is freedom. And that we proclaim that it is only in the name of Jesus Christ that those things can be found. The temple is a place, Solomon goes on, to welcome the stranger. In verse 41, Likewise, when a foreigner, who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel." And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. I think it's ironic that the place that has been viewed as a place only for the Jews, or this place, it might be viewed as only a place for Christians, is actually intended to welcome the stranger. To invite the one without a home to home. To invite the one without a family to say, welcome to the family of God. To the one who does not know love, this is the place where we experience divine love. So much so that the Son of God became a man, so that all men and women might become the sons and daughters of God. The temple is a place that we have been called for a purpose Every group needs a purpose. For us as Christians, we only, a need, we only need to allow God's word to speak to us as to our purpose. It hasn't been done by a committee. It's not been done by a staff person. It's not been done by a think tank or, 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 or somebody we've hired to help us. It's given to us by God, God's word. If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 28. We should really kind of know this one by heart. You might have heard it before. It's called the Great Commission. Here it is. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
Most people stop there, but it keeps going. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. We are called to go. Not, not to wait for the world to come here. <laughs> we don't sit relaxed and comfortable waiting for all the heathens and folks struggling to come here. We're called to go to them. To make disciples. It requires us to be willing to risk a relationship with our neighbors. Now, I don't know if any of my neighbors are here this morning. But there are some neighbors that I don't really want to be in relationship with. I've seen how they keep their yard up. But it's what you and I are called to do in our own neighborhoods, in new neighborhoods, in the neighborhood that's being built across the street. Untold numbers of folks coming right into our backyard, and we're called to risk entering into a relationship with them. We're called to risk them saying to us, no, I don't want what you have. That's all right. Baptizing, leading them into the knowledge of God, helping them refocus their lives on Christ and following him, teaching them the importance of repentance, what it means to, to, to stop going your way and turn around and follow Jesus. Teaching, showing them that our faith is one of passion and intellect, feeling and thinking, growing in knowledge so that they're better equipped to overcome the darkness that pursues each of us. And then Jesus says, I am with you. That our God never leaves us. That our God never forsakes us. That our God never abandons us. And that even as we're running away from God, God is pursuing us. When you first broke ground, on this building. I'm almost done, so some of you can wake back up. When you first broke ground for this house of worship, Pastor Darrell asked you five questions. Will it glorify God? Will it bring us closer to Him? Is it in the keeping with the goals and promises of His kingdom? Will it bring forth good for all the people involved? Can it be accomplished on our own or is it dependent on the power of his Holy Spirit? These questions are not all that different from Solomon's point of the purpose of the temple built over 3,000 years ago. Pastor Darrell mentioned in that same sermon, and again here today, this morning, buildings are merely ministry tools. And even Solomon himself knew that the building doesn't hold God. But God and God's purposes hold the building. And here are some reminders. Reminders of this building. Of a true temple. Not made of bricks or mortar. Not boards and nails. But people, our children, our husbands, our wives, our friends, and our neighbors, brothers and sisters in Christ, making a difference in the world for the glory of God. It's real, folks. 
It's every day. It's truth with a capital T. And though this building will one day pass away, like Solomon's temple passed away, God's temple, me and you, and the work that is done from this place, that temple, that temple is eternal. Our Father and our God, thank you for calling this place into existence. And thank you for the charge. Thank you for giving us your purpose to reach our community, our world, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We resolve this day, O oh God, to continue the work that has been done before us and to labor on for your glory. We resolve to stay steady. For we are your church. In Jesus' name, amen.